You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word there while you're turning there, uh, let me uh, take a moment to remind you of a couple of things. This is the season of giving and the season of prayer for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, uh, something that I know many of you are familiar with. You've given through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for a number of years. Uh, If you're not familiar with that offering, uh, Lottie Moon, as Chris, uh, our pastoral resident, mentioned last week, uh, was a missionary to China years ago, and God used her in amazing ways uh, back in the early days of uh, missions work uh, and uh, and through uh, her legacy and ministry uh, way back there. Uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering was established. And so we have literally missions partners all over the world uh, serving through the International Mission Board. And every penny that you give uh, to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes to those missionaries. And so I would encourage you uh, to give sacrificially in this season uh, and to give prayerfully. And one of the ways you can do that is grab uh, one of these prayer guides out in the foyer. uh, And it highlights some of the work of our International Mission Board partners Uh, and what God's doing all around the world. And there are also some offering envelopes that you can use. Uh, It's not required that you use those envelopes. In fact, everything that uh, you give toward missions, if it's designated to missions, uh, through the month of uh, December and typically through the end of January, uh, will go to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And for the last several years, uh, our church has exceeded $20,000 in our giving to uh, the Lottie Moon offering. And I I believe we'll do that again this year uh, if we are uh, faithful in our giving Uh, to mission. So I hope that you'll do that. Uh, These are exciting times for us. If you're new to the First Baptist family, uh, you may not be aware that we are really close to moving into a a new facility on our new 20-acre campus on the other side of Highway 75. Uh, Our plan right now is to keep this building, and so this will be called the downtown campus. Uh, Over there will be called the main campus. Uh, But a lot is going on over there this week. Uh, In fact, a lot happened this weekend. Uh, There are now trees planted over there, so it's looking more like home all the time. Uh, The playground is under construction. Uh, A brand spanking new Lionheart bus was delivered over the weekend, Uh, and so a lot of cool things happening uh, over there. Uh, With that, um, some of you may not be aware that there are employment opportunities uh, through Lionheart, especially if you have experience uh, in early childhood education and that kind of thing. Uh, I would encourage you uh, to, uh, to look into that. You can find links on our website and all those things, and there are people here who can answer questions for you and get you connected with the right people uh, if that's something that you may have an interest in. So uh, these are certainly exciting days. I'll tell you that uh, this may not be the best week to go over and visit, uh, especially going inside the building. Uh, the, the staining of the concrete is in the main space is scheduled for this week, and so you may not be able to get in those main doors anyway during part of the time, but uh, still uh, drive over there and drive through the parking lot and pray, all right? So uh, very soon. And so with that, um, we have a schedule change coming on Christmas Eve. Uh, that is a Sunday this year. Uh, December the 24th, we'll shift our schedule, so our early service will be at 930 late service at 11. And what you need to realize is there will be community groups going on during both of those hours. There won't be an hour in between there that's dedicated just for community groups. There'll be community groups going on during both of those times. So you'll be hearing more details about that schedule change, but look forward to that uh, just another couple weeks 
on this schedule, then we'll shift, and that will carry us through over into the new building. And so uh, you can look forward to that. Well, our culture calls this the holiday season. Uh, And as Jace mentioned, uh, the holiday season officially begins for people uh, at different times. Some would say, man, Halloween is the start and and all of that kind of thing. And um, I know that's heavily debated. Uh, The commercial world would tell us that it, you know, it comes in the summer sometime and they start putting all the stuff out and that kind of thing. There's a lot to love about this time of year. Uh, I, I love the gatherings, and I love the lights, and I love the giving of gifts, and, and all of those kinds of things. I love that. But there also seems to be plenty to resist. Uh, I think it's important that we resist uh, being consumed by the busyness of the season and the stress of having to find just the right gift and, and all the things associated with that and the commercialization of it all and the overspending and people just to think that there are people that spend so much on Christmas that they end up paying for it through the rest of the year and hope that they can catch up before the next Christmas rolls around. And so there's, there's a lot to resist. And I think we would do well to ask the question, how can we make the, holy, uh, the holidays holy days? And that's why we're very intentional about Advent. For Christians, this season has traditionally been known as Advent. And it's a, it's, it's a season of waiting. And while it may not have been a part of your tradition growing up, um, and maybe you thought of it as just something that was reserved for the high church crowd and all that kind of thing, that's really not the case. Again, it's about anticipating and remembering and rejoicing. And for me, the best part of, of Advent is the opportunity that it gives us to kind of step back from the familiar place in which we live 2,000 years on this side of the, the coming of Jesus into the world and to go back uh, to the time of hundreds and hundreds of years of anticipation and waiting. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, waiting for Messiah to come, waiting for the light to dawn, waiting for deliverance, waiting for salvation. And the other thing that heaven does is it reminds us that Jesus is coming again. And so we're still in a place of waiting, a place of anticipation. Uh, and it seems like in certain seasons when, when the world seems to be going kind of crazy and there's uh, conflict in the Middle East especially and American politics are out of control and all the stuff associated with the crazy world in which we live, people are trying to figure out when is Jesus coming back? Uh, and it's at this time of year that we get more questions about that, uh, questions about eschatology. Surely this is pointing to the return of Jesus and, and, and they're trying to figure all that. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to figure out when Jesus is coming back. I'm not saying we shouldn't study prophecy, but we're not, we're not told to, to try to crack the code, so to speak, that some people seem so consumed with. What we are told to do is be faithful in watching and waiting and at the same time working for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's what we want to be faithful to do in this season. And so uh, the church has now waited almost 2,000 years since Jesus physically ascended uh, into heaven and promised uh, his return for us. And so seeing how... Uh, God's people watched and waited uh, can equip us to watch and wait uh, as well. And so this year we're going to spend our Advent season in just one passage, Isaiah chapter 9. So we're going to pause our study of the Gospel of John. Uh, I don't want us to put it in Tupperware and stick it in the fridge though, okay? What we're going to do is we're going to scoot it onto one of the back burners and put it on low, okay? Because, as you'll see this morning, we're going to continue to refer to John's Gospel. And I want to help you connect the dots uh, between the gospel, uh, the gospels and the gospel writers and some of these Old Testament prophecies as we look 
at Isaiah chapter 9. So let's get it together, picking it up in verse number 1. Today we're really going to just focus on verses 1 and 2 primarily, uh, but I do want us to read down through verse 6 for the sake of context here. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What I want to do this morning is I want to highlight uh, a phrase that you see there in verse number 2, beginning with these words, the people who walked in darkness. The people who walked in darkness. So the first thing that we see in, in the coming, uh, that the coming of Jesus into the world means is the dawning of the light into the darkness. Uh, But what does that mean uh, for the world and for our hearts and lives? And so uh, what does it mean to walk in darkness? Now, we're not going to go back uh, into all of the context of Isaiah's prophecy here, but in chapter 8, if you look at some of the final verses of of that, uh, that chapter, you'll notice it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so this is a, a rebellious, stiff-necked people who were looking to mediums and, and sorcerers for, for, for some kind of insight and knowledge and that kind of thing. And so that's what leads us into the context here of, of chapter 9. And so, uh, to, what does it mean to walk in darkness? It means gloom. Uh, it means anguish. It means contempt. And, and those are the first words used to describe the condition of God's people in Isaiah chapter 9. And these words describe well what it means to walk in darkness. Uh, when you are in the dark, uh, you are not in the know, right? You, you, you can't see. You are easily overwhelmed in certain cases by fear. And so the first place that we see the presence and the power of darkness in the Bible is at the very beginning. If you think back to the Genesis account of Genesis chapter 1, uh, it, this is what we would, in, in biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, we would call the first mention principle. And it's found right there in those first couple of verses where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and what? And darkness was over uh, the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the picture that we see there is something that is formless and empty and dark. This was the state of the world before God spoke and light entered. And so uh, if you've read much of the Old Testament, uh, it's not hard to see the darkness that dominated the people of God before the coming of Jesus. 
There are times, certainly, when we see flashes of light at times, when, when God led his people out of Egypt, for example, and parted the Red Sea and, and spared them from the uh, oncoming Egyptian army, and, and when David led God's people in victory over the Philistines, and when Solomon built the temple, and then when kings like Hezekiah and Josiah brought reform and revival and uh, uh, true worship to God's people. But overall, we see this crazy pernicious loop or this cycle that I think many times we see in our own lives. Uh, I would love to tell you today that the trajectory of my spiritual walk with the Lord uh, would start at that moment when I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it's always just been one steady climb toward Christ-likeness. But that's not what my journey has looked like. <laughs> there have been times when Mike was faithless. There have been times when Mike was not faithful. There have been times when, much like the people of Israel, I, I was idolatrous in, in my thinking and in my worship and, and all of those things. And so uh, that's what we see of the, the people of Israel. This constant sin and faithlessness of God's people kept them uh, in chains of darkness and gloom and anguish and contempt, formless, empty, dark spiritually. And if you study their history, you see that no sooner had they passed through the Red Sea that they, uh, that, that, that they sinned by complaining against the Lord. A year after he delivered them by wiping out the Egyptian army without any of them even having to lift a finger in battle, they refused to believe that he could defeat the powerful armies of the, of the promised land and so were cursed with 40 more years of wandering in the wilderness. Right after good kings brought reform and revival, bad kings would, uh, would rise and would, would bring about idolatry and injustice. And they were a people walking in darkness without the light of God to truly guide them from the heart. They were stubborn. They were, like us, rebellious and wayward and foolish and idolatrous and adulterous. I mean, and, and we sing it in a hymn, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Uh, that's us. And so God disciplined in them in love repeatedly, uh, bringing them into subjection to enemies so that they would see their sin and cry out to him. And they would, temporarily. <laughs> and they'd make earnest pleas to the Lord and, and pledge loyalty to him only to turn around and break their ba- vows as soon as the dust settled from the powerful deliverance that the Lord had brought. So what does it mean to live in a land of darkness? What is that saying? Isaiah 9, in its, in its context, is really speaking to a very specific region of God's people. Isaiah speaks here of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, the land beyond the Jordan. The, it sums up this whole region that is described here in the ESV as the Galilee of the nations. In some translations, it's the, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so, so what is this all about? So while the words of this prophecy... Um, do certainly sum up the situation of of all of God's people for for centuries before Jesus came, the focus seems to be specifically on this region of Israel for very good reason. And so let's let's do a quick history lesson for a moment, and hopefully this will help you connect the dots. Zebulun and Naphtali, you might remember, were two of the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, uh, two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when the promised land was divided by God, these tribes got land in the far north around the Sea of Galilee. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 9... Uh, is where we read that, that Hiram, or we can often say Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with great supplies, great quantities of, uh, of cedar and cypress uh, timber and with gold for the building of the temple. And in exchange, 
Solomon gave King Hiram uh, 20 cities in Galilee. Uh, Hiram didn't think much of these cities, however. He was like, what, what is this? What kind of cities are these that you have given me? Uh, and he expresses this kind of contempt uh, for these 20 cities. Like, this isn't great. It's kind of like saying today, hey, I got some swamp land in Louisiana I want to sell you. And you're just like, what is this? Like, who wants this, you know? Um, so these 20 cities were given to Hiram, king of Tyre. Um, and it is also the origin of this re- region becoming known as uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so what would happen is for settlers from Tyre, the Phoenicians, they moved into those 20 cities. Uh, it, it became a good area for the kings of Tyre to send their less desirable subjects. Okay, so they would, they would basically be literally marginalized. Okay, that's what this area became known as, this land of Galilee, which would be the first area that would be invaded and conquered whenever Israel's enemies would come, who always came from the north, invaded that area. So the Syrians, followed by the Assyrians, who completely conquered all of the northern tribes of Israel. And by the time Isaiah gave this prophecy, you've got to realize this, the Galilee area had been conquered and reconquered uh, many times, so many times, in fact, that the population was this mix of various peoples reflected in their mixed worship practices and in their cultural habits. And so uh, if, if all of the people of God were tempted to adopt the ways of the surrounding uh, nations, worshiping their gods, following their customs, Galilee was the worst of them all. This would have been a, a, a hotbed kind of region for that kind of thing. So this land was oppressed. It was afflicted. It was idolatrous. Uh, Everything else reflected uh, in the meaning of the word uh, darkness, the gloom, the anguish, the contempt. Uh, And if you've ever been in certain areas that are noted for... uh, for, for sin, for example, and, and, and things associated with sinful activity, uh, some of you, you would report feeling a heaviness in your spirit about that. I know there was a time much earlier in my ministry where I did a chaplaincy work in juvenile detention over in Denton County, Texas. And so every Sunday afternoon I would drive up and I would uh, teach a Bible study to these kids who were incarcerated in juvenile detention. And I can remember sometimes leaving there feeling absolutely exhausted. It was, a, it was a physical weariness that I couldn't describe. And I think it was associated with the spiritual darkness that, that was there. And, and, and some of the things that these, these poor kids had, had been involved in, it was just a, it was just a, a spiritual battle uh, that was happening there. I think that's, that's largely what this region uh, would have been like. And the real heart of their problems, though, was that they couldn't see the real heart of their problems. And that's the way this region was. They always thought that the invading armies and the foreign occupiers were the real darkness and oppression and failed to see that their own sin was what held them in deeper, stronger chains and oppressed them far more than any invading army and was, in fact, the cause of God's discipline on them in the form of the invading armies. And so what about us? Do we walk in darkness? Do we live in a land of darkness? Apart from the grace of God intervening in our lives to bring the light of salvation in the person of Jesus, we are no different from the people of ancient Israel. 
We're prone to sin and idolatry. We're prone to imitate the ways of the the nations, we might say, to walk according to their priorities and values, to serve our own interests rather than worship and glorify the God who made us. And we too are tempted to think that our biggest problems are outside of ourselves. We tend to think our problems are in Washington or our problems are with the, just the culture around us and all those things rather than deep in our own hearts. It's like the old spiritual that says, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Um, the heart of the issue is, is right here. And thankfully, Scripture tells us that darkness never has the final word. After the darkness, God shines his light. This is the consistent pattern of God's work throughout Scripture. It's it's one of the biblical themes uh, that we can't ignore. And so you'll notice the second part of that phrase that we're really focusing on and highlighting this morning. These people who walked in darkness, it says next, have seen a great light. Have seen a great light. So God established this pattern of light coming into pierce the darkness, again, in the first pages of Scripture. Because we continue to read there in Genesis chapter 1, where we're told, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, what? Let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. Uh, The darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, in John's gospel, remember, we set it on the back burner. There it is. It echoes the language of Genesis chapter 1. We saw that in one of those first messages as we opened John's gospel together, where the word of God, the light of God, penetrate the darkness. And you see this echoing of language where in John 1, he says, In the beginning was the what? The word. And the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. It goes on to say there in verse number four. And the life was the what? Light of men. It was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, he says in verse five. And the darkness has not overcome it. So you see the connections now. You see how these things are working. That's why we would say you can't unhitch the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, the powerful pattern of God's work is easy to see uh, through what my uh, South African friend describes as the, the royal ribbon of redemption that runs throughout Scripture. I love to hear him say that. So the powerful pattern is seen here. God speaks his word into the darkness. The light penetrates the darkness in a way that the darkness cannot overcome. It reminds us of Psalm 119, verse 130, where it says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple, which then makes sense for, uh, for, for us to use that kind of terminology. When we talk about someone who's not in the know, we say they're what? They're in the dark. And so what would you say? Enlighten me, right? En- enlighten me. Help me have better understanding. So if you want to know what the Bible means by light, you can know it is the more powerful opposite of and solution to the darkness, the darkness. So darkness is ignorance, it's sin, it's shame, it's agony, it's despair, it's, it's ultimately death. So for Jesus to be condemned eternally uh, and to be rejected is to be shut out into what Scripture describes as outer darkness, right? 
Ultimately, the darkness is caused by the absence of light. So the light then, which flows from God himself, is truth and the knowledge of the truth and righteousness and honor, glory and joy and hope and ultimately life itself. So if to be condemned forever, according to Scripture, is to be cast into outer darkness, then to be fully redeemed is to be with God forever, who alone has immortality, and 1 Timothy tells us, who dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. So what light are we talking about here? If these people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, what what light? That's where we go back to our text in Isaiah chapter 9. What light is Isaiah prophesying will dawn and shine? He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The light is said to be great. Great in magnitude, great in power. Uh, to be able to penetrate those in a land of deep darkness, sinning, uh, shining on the, the guilty and the oppressed and the agonizing uh, people of God and such powerful light must, of course, come from God himself. I believe such a powerful light must be God's own light, the light of the world. So in this Christmas series, as we continue to make our way through uh, the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 9 here, we'll be unpacking the four names of the Messiah there from verse 6. And and we're going to see that the promised one to come could be no less than God himself. God come in the flesh. And so again, John tells us there in John chapter 1, He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. See the connection. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how did the light shine on them? Jesus was raised and came to age in in what we know as Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. So so he, he, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, right? And he ministered mainly in and throughout Galilee. In fact, if you take a trip to the Holy Land, you go to Israel, you tour over there, you will spend a significant amount of time in that region. And the reason for that is that's where Jesus did the majority of his work and ministry. That's where much of his teaching came, was in that region uh, that we're talking about. This is exactly, I love this, this is exactly what we read in Matthew chapter 4. Of the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, right after he was baptized, and remember, tempted in the wilderness, Matthew tells us this. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived at Capernaum by the sea in the territory of, see if this sounds familiar, Zebulun and Naphtali. You see the connection? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, oh my goodness, look at this, might be fulfilled. (laughs) Again, you see the connection? The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of the gospel writers, 
They show us how Jesus shone as the light of the world throughout his powerful teaching, which was full of truth and which unfolded the righteousness of God to the people. The one thing he did not do, pay close attention right here, was that he ref- what he actually refused to do was to lead a political revolution to overthrow the oppressive Romans who deprived God's people of their freedom and rights. Why? Because Israel was wrong to believe that Rome was the greatest oppressor and that political liberation was their greatest need. And Jesus would not reinforce this error and leave them in bondage, deceived into thinking they were free just because they were not under Roman rule. You see, sin and Satan and death, these are what hold God's people in true and deep darkness. This is the power of darkness that Jesus came to break, ultimately to free his people from darkness. Remember this, Jesus had to become sin and enter into darkness himself. On the cross, Jesus became sin for his people, we're told. And darkness, what, covered the face of the land for hours in the middle of the day. This is significant. God's just wrath against our sin was being satisfied. And when he had fully paid for all of our sins, with his precious blood, he cried out, it is finished. It was as if in that moment he flipped on the light switch the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and gave his spirit into the hands of his father and you know the story his precious uh, his body was committed to the darkness of the tomb but three days later the light of the world shattered the darkness of death forever he rose again from the dead securing immortality for all of God's people Eternal life is eternal light. So when we say the light has come, you got to think about the weight of what that means for us theologically. How does the light shine on us? What about those of us sitting here this morning, some 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, some 2,000 plus years after his resurrection from the dead? Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 4, we find these words. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And he goes on to write there in verse 6 of of 2 Corinthians 4. For God said, uh, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, get this, in the face of Jesus Christ. That's it. But we have this treasure, he says, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So believers in Jesus, and I hope that describes you, I hope that you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. In and of ourselves, we are nothing but jars of clay. We don't proclaim ourselves, as Paul said. We're not self-righteous. We need to make, the, make it clear to the world. It says, but God, the same God who spoke light into the darkness of the world in Genesis chapter 1, has chosen to shine his light into our hearts to give us the knowledge of his own glory as seen in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the light of the world. 
That's what it means to be saved. It's what it means to have the light of God penetrate our hearts and deliver us from darkness. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Man. I just have a couple of questions for you today as we wrap it up. Number one, has the light shone on you? Has the light shone on you? And I'm not talking about having some... Uh, experience on the mountaintop in Colorado is, is amazing. I'm not, I'm not talking about you having some moment of enlightenment or some kind of an epiphany and you found some kind of force outside of yourself and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. Has the light of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ shone on you? And what difference is the light of God making in your life? Have you trusted in Jesus, received from him what he alone can give, which is the gift of complete forgiveness and eternal life? If you have been transformed by the light of the world shining on you, what difference is it, does it make in your life? Two things, two things should characterize us as children of the light. If we have had the light shine on us and in our hearts, we should walk in the light and we should walk as children of the light. What does that mean? Walking the light means having fellowship with God and living our lives with Him. In 1 John chapter 1, it says this, This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, fellowship with God, fellowship with one another walking in truth, striving after righteousness. These are the characteristics of those who are walking in the light. And if the opening of God's word brings light, we need to be in the word. And if we're to be confessing our sin, then we need to be in prayer. And we need to be in fellowship with one another. Hmm. Love God, love neighbor, live connected. It's, 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 it's all right here. The word, prayer, fellowship. These are the heartbeat and the very lifeblood of walking in the light. And walk as children of light. Now again, as Paul said, it's not that we have this light in and of ourselves. I mean, you've been around people who just like exude joy and nice people, you know. I mean, no, we reflect God's light. We reflect God's light, just as the moon shines uh, in the night by reflecting the light of the sun. Ephesians 5, remember, calls us to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk as children of light. For the fruit of, of, of light is found that all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then it warns us against being foolish and living like the rest of the world and instead calls us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the context there of that, that section of Scripture. I'll, I'll put it this way to just keep it really simple because I'm a, I'm a simple kind of guy. 
You can either imitate your heavenly father and demonstrate what he is like to the world, or you can imitate the world and, and, and fit in and walk in darkness. So the light of the world has come into the world bringing truth and righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life. But has he shown in your heart, are you walking in the light, walking in the world as children of light? Let's bow together in prayer for a moment this morning. What an amazing picture we have through this prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. It speaks of not just any light, (laughs) but the light. The light of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel that pierces the darkness of our sinfulness, our brokenness. If you're here today and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to take that step of faith today. Walk in the light. If that is your testimony, then I rejoice with you. And Can we call one another to walk as children of the light? That's what church is about. That's what the people of God gathered is all about. To encourage one another as we strive to reflect the glory of God in our lives. It's not our righteousness, it's His. And Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this timeless text, a prophecy that clearly points to the fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the miracle that is your word. As we look at ancient words, all pointing to a living Savior, who brings light into a dark world thousands of years later, 2023. Well, we can't help but proclaim how great you are. I pray, God, that you continue to work in our hearts and lives, molding and shaping us into your image so that every day we might better reflect your glory in the darkness of the world in which we live. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.